You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I still have laryngitis. It's truly a You'll get over Uh, it someday. Bear with me. But it's sounding better though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I am feeling a little better. Uh and today I'm gonna talk about something very small. You know, sometimes when I'm thinking about insects or other animals that are a lot smaller than humans, I have this this moment where I kind of wonder about how things are sort of I'm I'm just amazed that things can function so well, even in such a tiny body. Like mm-hmm. you know, sure. a tiny midge you can barely see can fly and get around and do all the other things it needs to do to survive just as well as a large horsefly or an albatross right you know sure i often wonder how rachel like gets things off shelves (laughs) i climb kirk i climb okay well that answers my question thank you (laughs) you watched me be up on top of a very tall shelf at work once (laughs) we're not supposed to talk about that oh right (laughs) And of course, you know, physics imposes imposes all kinds of limits on the size of animals in various ways. And some animals, Mm -hmm. uh, like water striders, for example, use the physics of their small size in really amazing ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I've often wondered about kind of the lower limits of body size for different types of animals. And so I was really excited to read about some new research that came out in June about a very small frog called the pumpkin (gasps) toadlet. Oh, <laughs> oh, take it off my list. All right. <laughs> I heard about it. Beat me oh, it's so cute. So oh. cool. Uh, so this is a very small frog, just over one centimeter long. It's and so as tiny. the name suggests, it's a bright pumpkin orange. <laughs> so basically, it's like an orange M&M in the shape of a frog. Right. Um, and uh, surprisingly, it's actually not the world's smallest frog but pretty close. The The scientific name is Brachycephalus, and that's the genus, and then there's uh, several species that are all pretty similar. So these toadlets live in the high-altitude cloud forests of Brazil, and it seems pretty certain that their small body size must give them some evolu- evolutionary advantages. <clears throat> but there are some very weird things about them. We don't exactly know why they're so small, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, must be for some reason, but okay. Weird things. As you might expect from the coloration, it is poisonous. It's got aposematic, uh, coloring. Uh, Yep. Makes makes sense. Yeah. It actually contains our old friend tetrodotoxin, which you may recall, I talked about way back in the octopus episode Mm -hmm. and some other related toxins. So, you know, don't eat one. Uh, well, you, I was thinking about it when you mentioned M&Ms and I was wondering how crunchy they were and whatnot, but sounds like you're saying maybe no. Maybe don't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't. 
<laughs> no hair. Although when they're first born, they don't. Uh, I I believe they acquire the toxins from their food. So, so you're saying they, they're not the orange babies. and they're not toxic when they're born. Baby, Kirk, That's please dark. don't eat the baby. Yes. No, I wasn't planning on this. Is what she was implying. I thought it was kind of dark, but like, that's what she was going for. So, another weird thing about them is they have fluorescent skeletons. <gasps> what? Awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. Go on. Also, uh, the females, frogs, toadlets, lay their eggs on the land. What? And. They hatch directly into their adult form straight from the egg. There is no tadpole stage what? and there is what? no metamorphosis. Hold on. What? Yes. Ha- are you we're sure that they're I, not a reptile? They're, what? <laughs> that's like one of no, like I'm the key sure things. They're not a reptile, but Right, but that's like one of the key things well, I mean, about amphibians is they they lay their eggs in the water the and word, they go through metamorphosis. Yeah. The word amphibian literally means double life <laughs> because yeah. they go through to oh my gosh what that is um mind-blowing oh my goodness well so you know i was also intrigued when i read this about them not going through metamorphosis so i did a little bit of searching to see if there are other species that don't go through metamorphosis oh, yeah. also yeah yeah <clears throat> it turns out there are i didn't do a super deep dive on this but well, Enough to to discover that there's what there's there's more than That's one what she said. species what? <laughs> of frog. Yeah, that doesn't do yeah, metamorphosis. I saw something that said there's like a this whole was an group area of, of our ignorance. Yeah, Ugh. species in the Indian subcontinent that don't like this is apparently um, an adaptation for frogs that live in. Uh, you know, somewhat dry or only intermittently wet areas. Okay. Yep, that was my thought. Yeah, arid okay. areas yeah. where they're not going to have an ephemeral pond around long enough. I mean, that makes sense. You know, I don't like. As it. we always say, we like to put we like to put nature into little boxes, and it doesn't like to stay there. I don't. I like, like it. my little nope. boxes. Sometimes, Get over it, Rachel. <laughs> the show is called Strange by Nature. We're not going to keep you in your safe box. Okay, fine. <laughs> Finally, to get back on this research that came out in June that alerted me to the existence of the pumpkin toadlet, mm-hmm. uh, this research focuses on its jumping abilities. Oh, really? And okay, yeah. These uh, these little fellows are super comical when they jump because. Uh, number one, mm-hmm. they flip either end over end or kind of spin like a football <laughs> while in the air. Oh, Also, if no. you're throwing a football and a football yeah. goes like that, then you, you threw it wrong. But oh my gosh, that's so cute. You kick it, maybe, you know. Oh, yeah. Number two, they are completely unable to stick the landing. <laughs> oh, 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 no. oh, oh, oh. They land on their head, they land on their back, their butt, their sides, very rarely on their legs. Research has so get, the, uh, get the, the slow-mo guys on this to, I need some slow-mo footage of this. Oh. Yeah, well, the, the, the Atlantic article um, that I mainly referred to for this episode 
has uh, some gifts of the frog jumping, which you should definitely oh check out. Oh my gosh. Now, uh, the article back to by last the way, week's episode. Were there little um, leaf, little sheep leaf sheep on their back? Because that would be cute <laughs> oh. to, like, to the extreme. But they would probably crash on the landing, so probably not safe to ride the to- the frog. Yeah, right. no. You don't want to be riding on this frog. Uh, the article, by the way, is called A Frog So Small It Could Not Frog. Oh. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, That's so cute. So researchers, you know, very kindly have termed this an uncontrolled landing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, luckily, they don't seem to hurt themselves when they crash land because they are so small. It's it's much harder for small animals to hurt themselves mm-hmm. by right. gravity. Um, and really, right, the Rachel? problems. I mean, I test <laughs> gravity often. I saw that bruise uh, you got the <laughs> other week. Um, that was not from falling. I will say that, and it that is was from a canoe. From a canoe, and it is almost gone. Oh, good. It's, Still somewhat there, but it's almost gone. <laughs> for context for you all, it was an almost 11-inch bruise on my leg. So, fun times. It was brutal. <laughs> yeah. Not not a good... <laughs> or not a good look. Not a good feeling, I'm sure. Nope. Um, the frog jumps, though, like, the problem's not their muscles. They can take off fine. <laughs> the problem is their balance. So your your balance is largely due to a part of your inner ear called the vestibular system. Mm-hmm. And the vestibular system is mostly made of fluid-filled tubes. Uh, this toadlet is so small, though, that its head is so shrunken mm-hmm. um, that the vestibular tubes are too narrow for the fluid to flow and accelerate properly. Oh. Right, they probably stick into the, the sides. Yeah. Too much surface tension. It, yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, I think the article compared it to like trying to force syrup through a thin straw. And so once they're in the air, you know, their muscles, as I said, work fine. They could take off, but once they're in the air these tiny tubes in their head mean that they can't orient during their jump. And so they can't land on their feet. (laughs) Just completely bewildered. Okay. And um, scientists have actually only seen landings this bad before in frogs whose vestibular systems had been experimentally damaged. Because we do mean things to frogs. Mm, Don't like that. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly, the toadlets generally prefer to get around by walking very slowly. That's <laughs> and fair. they only jump as a last resort to escape danger. And, Me too. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same. Just, just to wrap this up, this is a pretty short episode for me, but another weird feature related to their tiny heads is that their ears also are underdeveloped. Hearing. Okay. And um, like many frogs, they give a mating call. Uh huh. uh, But uh, 
their ears are actually unable to hear the frequency of the mating call of their own species. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? What? So I'm just going to leave that there. On. Come on. Uh, let me make what this What is the point of having no a mating call that hear? your own species can't hear? I think it's All like that a vestigial function, saying, apparently. Eat me. Come have lunch. <laughs> Food. Look at me. I'm. Ta- well, they are poisonous, though. How do they find each other then? Um. Good question. Walking very. I know. Slowly, that's why Kirk. I asked it. They walk wow. very slowly, and until they stumble into one another, they just jump. And if they land on another toad or frog, they're like, "There we go." They do have pretty large eyes for their head size, according to the photographs I saw. So maybe they have good vision. We're gonna find out. They have ESP. <laughs> that would be amazing. Frog ESP. <laughs> so um, that is the <laughs> comical small frog that I have for you this week. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back from the break, Kirk will have something new for us. Before we get back to the show, just want to remind people that uh, for all this month, we are asking people to share us with a friend. That's right. You know, usually uh, we have a little ad in this spot asking you to go over to the to Patreon and become a member of the Society of Strange, which you can still do. But if you wanted to share us with a friend, that is much appreciated as well. Uh, we know you like the show because you're listening to it, but share your love uh, with the world. The more listeners we have out there, the bigger our family grows and the more we get to do and the more our nefarious plans to take over the world. Oh, wait, we can't talk about that, can we? That's no, coming we, later. No, no, so, no, we can't. Um, don't you know, don't just, give uh, away our say, plans, The more Kirk. listeners we have, the more fun it is. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. All right. Yeah, back to that, the show. that's true. That's fair. So we are now well into the dog days of summer, and it, it has been hot. It's Would you so agree? War- well, oh, yeah. It's going to be warm up here tomorrow. <laughs> right. And for, it to be warm, for it to be warm where Rachel is, is really, really saying something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when heat, often when heat builds a lot, we eventually get storms. And you can think of heat as energy because, well, it, it is. is a form of energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and storms are powered by that energy get enough energy and a mix of cool and warm fronts of air and you get thunderstorms. Um, although there actually is a type of thunderstorm you can get uh, that doesn't really involve the, the mixing of warm and cool air. It's just really driven, driven by the heat. And that's actually going to be pretty important to uh, today's topic. I do want to take sort okay. of an instant poll here with a sample size of three naturalists. So let me know, where do we stand? What do you think of thunderstorms <laughs> in general? Love them, hate them. Where do we stand? Love them. Uh, Love them? Rachel? I've never been a fan of severe weather. I respect that they look cool. I respect that they look cool and they sound cool. I I still hold on to that really fun fear like a little puppy dog. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to be outdoors in a thunderstorm. Yeah. Right. I mean, I kind of do, but I know I shouldn't be. Right, right. Kirk, you would be a storm spotter. I, I, 
I love. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, full disclosure. <laughs> I am a uh, storm spotter, not a storm chaser though, because I mostly because I value my car too much. Um, I can tell you, that I I love thunderstorms. I find mm-hmm. them endlessly fascinating. I love tracking them on radar. I love watching them develop on the horizon. I love the downpour of rain. I love the beautiful lightning. I love the way thunder can just shake everything. And I know I, some people find it deeply disturbing, like maybe Rachel. Uh, but Sometimes. I can't just get, en- I, I can't I, get I, enough. Hey, right? I respect it, uh, especially since I, I've moved to the, the north. Uh, like being able to see like a storm coming in over one of the Great Lakes. Like that's that's pretty yeah. cool. Like being able to watch oh, yeah. that. That's that's pretty cool. I'll admit right, right. that. <laughs> now, thunderstorms can be destructive. So I need to be clear. I'm not a fan of the damage they cause, especially when the damage uh, is you know damaging personal things. But uh, even seeing the destruction they can cause is also fairly interesting from a purely scientific perspective, even when we're saddened by the emotional and financial cost to our fellow humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one aspect of thunderstorms that I really uh, like is right there in the name, thunder. Uh, the thunder is, of course, the result of lightning. And we talked to, we've talked about lightning before in the show. I think, mm-hmm. Rachel, you yeah. did sort of a basic story about what lightning is kind of early on in the podcast. And Victoria did a story mm-hmm. on um, Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela, where they have lightning storms 300 days out of the year. Oh, be still my heart. Again, um, a place so, I will never, ever live. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Victoria and I are like, we got to get there sometime. <laughs> so uh, you'd think we'd covered lightning pretty well on the show, but oh no, we're not done yet. I have for you today one more story about lightning. Okay. So Victoria talked about the place with the record for the most lightning, I want to talk about the records for the biggest lightning. Uh, what? So we're oh, going, boy. We're, we're going to measure lightning size in two different ways. First up is distance, like how far does the lightning travel? Okay. And the second way we could measure the biggest is by how long does that lightning flash last? Which, mm-hmm. you know, spoiler alert, it's a famously short period of time you, <laughs> right you yeah. could say it's um, a, a flash a flash right <laughs> so let's tackle distance let's tackle distance first now you might be thinking that this couldn't possibly be all that long like clouds aren't all that far from the ground to start with but we're not talking about cloud to ground lighting lightning we're talking about cloud to cloud lightning these are ones mm. that don't mm. hit the ground they just mm-hmm. are, you know, shooting across the sky. Um, or in perhaps in this example, cloud to cloud to cloud to cloud to cloud to cloud lightning. Uh, so back okay. in 2019, the World Meteorological Organization announced two new records had been broken for the longest distance and the longest duration for lightning strikes. And both of them were in South America. Uh, the longest cool. distance lightning strike covered. Are you ready? Yeah. Probably not. 709 kilometers. What? <laughs> also what? known as 440 miles of linear distance. Oh, that's, no. that's, that's too long. That's yeah. too long. I don't like that. That's too long. Uh, so this oh, was in su- like that. <laughs> southern Brazil. Uh, the storm itself had been, uh, actually it was on Halloween day, October 31st, 2018. 
And in the press release, there's an actual map of the path it took. And keep in mind that this is not like a single long straight bolt across the sky, which is kind of mm-hmm. what I pictured when I first heard this story. Right. Um, it actually sp- spread out in a fractal pattern across the sky. Oh. And it looks like a, a map of a river with tributaries. So it, it was, was searching lightning? out for... Yeah, like searching out for paths that could take across the sky mm-hmm. and just kept crawling forward and forward and forward for hundreds of miles. Some little tendrils kind of dying out, lots of little dead ends, but it kept on finding like a, a, a route it could take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was one central twisting path that ended 709 kilometers from where it started. But it was a winding road. So if you yeah. were to measure the actual oh, length no. of the bolt... With all the oh. turns taken out, oh. which they haven't done, but it would be even longer, which blows wow. my mind. So scientists have dubbed these events Mega Flashes. Yeah. Which is a pretty cool name. <laughs> That's pretty uh, Now, in the same press release, they detailed the longest flash uh, as being in Argentina on March 14th, 2019. And similarly, this mega flash just kept going and going and going. But instead of covering like a large geographic area, it just kept branching and branching and branching and going around and around in a dense area. And Hmm. it lasted so long because it just kept on branching and kept on branching and kept on branching. Hmm. And the total time of this mega flash was 16.73 seconds. Oh, that's so long. So just take just take a moment and pause, and, and pause the show if you have to, and just count in your head like one, <laughs> two, three, four, and just imagine getting up to sixteen point seven three seconds, and imagine the lightning flash just keep it just keeps on branching and going for that long, mind boggling, mind boggling. Now, uh, we have these new records in part because we can That's finally insane. look for them. Yeah, there's these geostationary operational environmental satellites, or the GOES 16 and 17, Mm -hmm. and they have detectors on them that can finally, like, document and keep track of this sort of thing. So it's it's not like something different is happening now that's great, and this mega lightning has always been out there. We're just finally able to measure it. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the 2019 press release, actually, uh, Professor Randall Cerveni of the WMO said, quote, it is likely that even greater extremes still exist and that we will be able to observe them as lightning detection technology improves. And guess what? He was right. Yeah. Forget those numbers I just told you. Both of them were broken just one year later. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, In in 2020, the WMO announced two new records. The longest oh, no. linear distance for a mega flash is now 768 kilometers, which is 477.2 miles. And no. this was from a storm uh, in the southern U.S. on the 29th of April, 2020. This <laughs> mega flash started in Texas, spread all the way across Louisiana, and ended in Mississippi. <laughs> so this was a lightning flash. No. That was 37 miles longer than the old record. Uh, Also in 2020, on uh, June 18th, a mega flash started in Argentina, crossed into Uruguay, and then back into Argentina. So you can see it was taking kind of a looping route. And it lasted 17.1 seconds. 
Uh, no. For, and that's another another new record right there. So uh, cool. both of these I, I kind of like mentioned it. at the beginning. Um, storms <laughs> that uh, are not the uh, like the, where two different fronts are, are building, but it's just like you get tons and tons and tons and tons of heat and then you get this uh, convective event. That's what causes this type of uh, huge, huge uh, storm. And mm-hmm. often these are storms that actually don't have a lot of lightning. The ones where there's like flash, 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 flash all the time, they're constantly discharging their energy, so it doesn't have the chance to really build up to create mm-hmm. these mega flashes. So you need to have a little bit different kind of storm than we, I don't want to say typically get, but it's 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 a, it's a special type of storm that creates these mega flashes. Okay. So I guess stay stay tuned because we've only really just begun to have the technology to observe these mega flashes for a short number of years. So um, these records could still be easily broken as we move forward, which I find exciting and I'm sure Rachel finds terrifying. Yes. Uh, my sources this <laughs> week were the World Meteorological Organization and the Guinness Book of World Records. Pretty cool. Cool. Yeah. Terrifying. That's what I have. We're going to go. Well, hopefully you'll have something less terrifying for us then. We're going to go to a break and then Rachel, it's going to be your turn. Excellent. All right. So I was thinking about what kind of topic I wanted to do this week. And obviously, like I I have quite a few to choose from. But then. Right. I remembered something that Victoria did somewhat recently. Um, Victoria was talking about invasive species um, outside of the U.S. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was mm-hmm. really that was really cool and exciting uh, just because I, those are things that I don't tend to think about. But it made me think about some of the invasive species that are here in the U.S. And let me tell you, I have some feelings about some of these uh invasive species would you say they give you the feels no (laughs) i i i say that (laughs) that's the wrong usage of that word it is uh i would say that they make me very angry and it is part of my like self-care if i need to get like any sort of frustration out i go to an area that has these invasive species and i just start pulling (laughs) Um, so one of the species, one of the invasive species that really just gets my goat and just gets under my skin is buckthorn. So I want to talk about buckthorn oh, today. Buckthorn. Buckthorn's the worst. It's. But if you were a goat, you would get it. Exactly. Oh, oh, oh nice. <laughs> but I hope you talk about too, like buckthorn, as much as we tend to hate it, it's amazing. Yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. Like, truly, as much as I hate Buckthorn, and truly, I hate Buckthorn. I know it takes over. But when it comes down to it, um, it's just, and this goes for a lot of invasive species, is just really, really good at what it does. It's just a really good plant so good it's good at being a plant so uh (laughs) so got that down (laughs) (laughs) um so to give you a little uh description of what buckthorn is i mean we all know what it is but just in case our listeners don't so buckthorn is uh 
it was used as a privacy hedge. So it's this really bushy, shrubby plant that grows really densely together with um, a grayish bark that has these little sticks that are almost thorns and feel like thorns. And they grow with many shoots up together really densely and eventually over time will actually outcompete and shade out any native plants in the in the United States at least uh, where there aren't any native here, predators yep, yep. and at least here um, but it outcompetes and just spreads everywhere but it has uh, there's a couple different species of buckthorn but overall it has these simple uh, oval like leaves that have like a little bit of a point to them they look almost like cherry leaves actually to me um and they tend to have like either really shiny uh green dark green coating or dark green on the top and then be duller on the bottom but again that's species to species um eventually what happens is they get these little like blackish berries that um, look almost like a cherry and a blueberry, like had a baby, um, and sure. they ha- and they have a really like um, decent like pit or seed on the inside, and they grow like in big bunches. Uh, they tend to uh, all over the tree, like they produce like hundreds of of little berries. Oh yeah, lots of berries. Lots of berries. Lots and lots of berries. Um, so that's generally what a buckthorn looks like. Now, when it comes down to it, like we said, buckthorn is just really good at being a plant, and it it's able to do this for a couple different reasons. So primarily, it really enjoy it. It does very well in disturbed areas um where there's been a lot of turnover uh it also does really really well in forested areas um where it competes with the other plants and outcompetes them actually because they're able to grow and germinate very very quickly and they're generally one of the first plants to actually have all of their leaves on even the taller branches because these aren't like small little uh you mean shrubs? in in the springtime? In the springtime, yes. Yeah, like the first to leaf out, yeah. Yeah, they're like the first one of the first plants to have all of their leaves out. Um and it happens very early in the spring. And then the to on the other end, it's one of the last to actually keep their leaves. So they retain their leaves late into the fall. So it has a really long extended growing season which allows it to be able to um gain a lot more energy through photosynthesis because and store more sugars to be able to use and grow even faster. Right. Um, yeah. But there's there's weirder things that it does too, right? There are weirder things. Yes, this is strange by nature. So that's one way that it outcompetes. But another that actually is more recently discovered. Um, so one of it, one of them, it isn't, super recent it was discovered in uh 2006 um buckthorn is actually able to alter um the habitat by influencing the nitrogen cycling in the soil 
so wild. Uh, so it's able to like help itself grow by helping the soil and the microbes in the soil fix nitrogen and bring the nitrogen to them rather than other plants. Like they're able to use it faster than other plants, which is crazy. <laughs> but, but on top of that, as of a 2010 and 2017 papers, uh, it actually also might produce somewhat of a herbicide that helps prevent the germination yeah, yeah. of other plant species um, around it, which is just crazy. I mean, some... Yeah, they're basically using <laughs> chemical warfare. More or less, yeah. They're able to exude all of the chemicals that saying, hey, no, this is my space, and prevent plants that historically have been uh in that forest but also like alter the nitrogen so that way the buckthorn can use it but the other plants can't which is crazy um it's also so, so wild is it's wild but because of that chemical activity it actually also might disrupt um ecosystems by preventing like native amphibian eggs from hatching because those chemicals oh, the nitrogen oh, wow. will seep into uh the chemicals that it produces in the roots actually can seep into like the water sources and like ephemeral ponds and everything and prevent those um amphibians from hatching and then like i talked a little bit about the berries too um, so one of the things that happens and how they're able to disperse and have gone pretty much across the country, um, is because there are birds who eat those berries. They're left, oftentimes they're left over from winter and they're some of the first berries that they're able to eat when birds are migrating through, but the birds don't realize or don't know. They just see this delicious berry and think that they can eat it. But unfortunately it causes even in humans and mammals, really really bad diarrhea yep which is good oh, for the yeah which is great for the plant because it, it you can take the ba like that seed is gone it is further away from you and then it has this nutrient uh, nutrition it has this nutritious like pile of stuff to allow it to grow its own fertilizer right, so right. it's going to be just fine but it's terrible for like our native bird species because they eat it and they're trying to gain energy to help them migrate or just survive and all of it just goes straight through the tubes yeah yeah <laughs> um one right through the donut hole yep yep <laughs> uh one other thing that i wanted to talk about too is how We've talked about about how it's uh, pretty resilient, but it's extremely resilient. You can you can cut buckthorn. That's a thing that you can do, but oftentimes yep. when you see buckthorn removal programs, you're pulling it through and trying to get as many or all of the roots as you possibly can, shaking out the root, uh, shaking out the soil, and then having it sit out to dry so that way it can just be taken away. And that's but one of one of the sort of nefarious things about that though is and, and why some programs are now recommending to use herbicides instead of pulling is that when you pull, mm -hmm. you disturb the soil. And mm -hmm. what you just said was that they thrive in disturbed soils. So yep. actually 
pulling them out actually makes the soil even better for blackthorn. Exactly. But not only that, too, but if you do um, just decide to cut and you don't treat it, all you're doing is it's like a little it's like a little hydra. It quite literally will just have (laughs) way more branches, but it has a really strong root system now because you cut it and it's going to be that much harder to get rid of. So you actually, if you are trying to get rid of any buckthorn, um, you need to treat the inner layer of the um, candium. Otherwise, it will just regrow, Um, which I mean, it's great as a plant because not only could it be cut, but this also means that they're so dense, they don't want to be like burned or anything. But if that is something people have tried to just burn that whole section of forest, but the buckthorn will just come back because as long as they have their root systems and their root systems are okay because they are so fibrous and they are so like spread out, they truly will just keep coming back. And it's insane. Yeah, we, we've done some some forest burns at work in areas that have buckthorn. And if they're Mm -hmm. little, like say under a foot, maybe two feet tall, the fire seems to somewhat kill them off, Mm -hmm. but anything bigger, it just sort of makes them angry and makes them grow even faster. Exactly. (laughs) So it's truly amazing. amazing. Yeah. They're an amazing plant. Like I hate them so much. And one of, and Victoria mentioned (laughs) this too, Uh, One of the treatments that has been done has been having goats go out and like eating the buckthorn and like chewing it down because goats will eat anything and everything. And they don't seem to be as affected by like the berries or any of the other like um, diuretic issues that happen when eating buckthorn because the same thing happens if you like the, the leaves and such, or at least for the mammals. But it only works for the really little ones because they'll just keep coming back. So you have to keep having those um, berry or those goats come back year after year because the, the buckthorn will just come back. And part of that is because of the berries that are being dropped by the birds. But the other part is like those berries are really, really good and they can uh, stay like dormant for several years before they pop up and germinate and start growing all over again if they yeah i've heard i've heard six up to six years yeah uh the number i heard was five so it's it's really intense but on top of that like similar to on top of all of that buckthorn is also somewhat rhizomous so can have sprouts come up just like aspen trees from a root system. So there could oh, be one oh. system of buckthorn that is just, a, you can pull like one and all of a sudden there it's a long uh, root that leads to another buckthorn that leads to another buckthorn. Truly. It's, it's truly it's strange and amazing. It's just, yeah. it's frustrating that it's doing yeah. it in our forests. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that is because it was, it was brought over uh, in the 1800s for uh, privacy hedges because they grow so dense um, that it was, it was like preferred because it's like, oh, well, I want all of the, I want all of the uh, privacy I possibly can get. But yeah, it's just, 
it's pretty crazy. If you um, go to any nature center or uh, if you talk to a naturalist or we'll have a picture up on our uh, social media, we'll have pictures and you can absolutely, if you have it in your yard, it's actually illegal to buy or sell uh, buckthorn in the United States. Um, you can go ahead and pull it, pull, pull it, <laughs> get rid of it. Um, yes. Get it out. If it's uh, small, if you can, uh, you can pull the small seedlings and they won't re-sprout. If you can get the, if you feel strong enough to get some of the bigger stuff and cut them and treat them, go for it. You can have so much more, uh, native plants and native like fauna that show up in your yard. If you actually, if you get rid of it, you know, um, so that's what I have. Now for I you know both. that. I'll say I know our buddy uh, Vikram over at Plantropology Podcast. Mm-hmm. His least favorite tree, uh, which he's made very clear, is the Bradford pear. Oh yeah, those uh, those are terrible, terrible reasons. plants. Yeah, but we need to have like a a Bradford pear buckthorn throwdown someday mm. to determine which is really the worst uh, worst tree species. As long as we don't bring in um, that one like vine that grows in the south uh kudzu nope. that would beat yep, all no, of we're us leaving no. that there yeah <laughs> uh well that's what i have for everyone today uh thank you all for joining us uh have a great rest of your week see you next week everybody Bye-bye. bye thanks everyone for listening to today's show be sure to subscribe New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.